The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. So let's first open to our passage, Matthew 17. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does not your teacher pay the tax? And Peter said, Yes. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon Peter? From whom do kings of the earth take tolls or taxes? From their own sons or from others? And when Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so as not to give an offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it, for, give it to them for my tax and for yours. Now, we're going to start at the end in verse 27. We're going to come back and go to 24 and come back to 27. But I have to first make the case that this is a parable text with an implied miracle. Now, a lot of the text we're going to talk about in this series that Vince will cover, that others will talk about, it is more clear what the miracle is. We see it depicted in Scripture. Uh, someone comes to Jesus and asks to be healed or asks for something to happen, and we see it happen in the text. But if you go back to verse 27 and you look, you only see that Jesus said for Peter to go do a certain number of things, go down to the sea, cast in a hook, catch a fish, open its mouth, there is the money. It never tells us that Peter actually did that, right? Go back and check, make sure I'm not lying to you. It never tells you he actually caught the fish, found the money, and paid the money right? It just says that Jesus told him to go do that. Now, many commentators have looked at this, and it's a problem when you look at it in terms of a miracle text, because the miracle never happens. We're just told that it, this is what you're supposed to do, but we don't know if it actually comes true or not, or if Peter obeyed him. In fact, Peter sort of speaks out of turn anyway, because he didn't check with Jesus before he told the tax collectors he was going to pay the tax, Right? He was like, oh yeah, he does that. And he comes back and Jesus is like, do I pay the tax? So there, there's already that. So I'm not, you know, Peter's already like 0 for 1 in terms of like checking with Jesus and making sure he's going to do what Jesus wants him to do first. So we don't know if Peter actually does or not. Graham 12.3 uh, in his book, Jesus the Miracle Worker says, the story ends without Peter actually catching the fish. And, the, and so the coin and the fish are symbolic, but it's not clear what they actually symbolize. Okay, so Graham 12th Street is already seeing this as a parable text, seeing this as an example that Jesus is giving of what Peter should do and how he's going to get himself out of this bind that Peter has put him in. But if we understand it as a parable, we're never told what the meaning is. Many times when Jesus gives parables in the scripture, he, he gives the story, gives the parable, and then the disciples take him aside later and they say, okay, now what does that mean? You're talking about seeds and trees and this and that. What does it all mean? 
And Jesus says, okay, because you're dum-dums, let me explain the parable to you. Well, again, we never get with this, right? So if it's a literal fish with a literal coin that Peter pays literal taxes with, we don't know if he actually does it or not. And if it's a symbolic fish with a symbolic coin to pay symbolic taxes, question mark, we don't know what that means either, right? So thanks, Vince, for the hardest text to ever preach. Only beaten by something from Job or maybe Kohelet um, if we don't want to be depressed. So, uh, you know, so there are a few other texts that are harder, but he, he, picked, a, he picked a doozy out for me. And uh, yeah, so we're just going to yeah, get, we're going to start with that. Okay. Now, let's go ahead and address the miracle or symbol or whatever it is first, okay? And then we'll come back to the top of 24. I promised you we'll go through the parable, but the problem is we have to talk about the hardest part first because the rest of it all builds on this fish coin story thing, right? Okay, so here we go. All right, so many commentators look at this story and notice that it has symbol, it symbols are reminiscent of other stories we have from that time, from the time that Jesus and the disciples were writing the time when the gospels were writing down. The first few centuries of the common era, some in the before the common era, uh, we have stories that talk about this. So uh, Herodotus, a very famous Greek historian, has a story called the Ring of Polycrates, in which Homer sort of gives this very weird nod to him, and he finds the ring that pays his ransom, and that sort of thing. Uh, in some of the rabbinic materials, we have the examples in which people owe a certain amount of money. Uh, you know, think of sort of, uh, you know, the classic trope from Westerns, you know, the widow woman is about to lose her house to the banker with the, you know, wax mustache, and then suddenly she digs by the well, and there's like a, you know, a box of money, that kind of thing. There's a lot of those sorts of stories. And there were stories in which people uh, do some good service, uh, worship God in the proper way, you know, uh, commemorate the Day of Atonement or, or a festival day or a, a fast day, even, it's, even though it's going to hurt them in some sort of commercial business way. And then the next day they go out and do their business and there's a pearl in the fish and it pays for everything and yay, right? So... This is a pretty good story, pretty well-known story. The issue with it is, is that it doesn't look like Matthew is actually telling a story, right? So M.D. Golder, another commentator who, who writes a lot about the, the idea of like stories and, and what's called midrash in Matthew, uh, says this, we, find, we have no instance elsewhere in Matthew of the evangelist adopting traditional Greek wonder stories into his gospel. Despite a much earlier view of some, we have seen that Matthew does very little to heighten miraculous stories. The only new miracles in the whole book, uh, other than the ones that are found in other Gospels, are the centurion's son, which is a development off of Mark's paralytic and some other materials found elsewhere, and the virgin conception, which is really a development off of Isaiah 7. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So it would be, so as far as as Golder is concerned, able to gauge quite out of character for Matthew to have invented a wondrous, miraculous tale on the basis of the Polycrates ring story. Uh, however, he wishes to suggest something else. He says, the teaching of Jesus in Mark, and so Mark is the next gospel. It's much more contracted. It has love stories in common with Matthew. The teaching of Jesus in Mark is mainly in the form of epigrams, direct 
literal tellings of stories. If Jesus says that it is better for you to have a a millstone hanged around your neck and thrown into the ocean, then it really is better that that would happen to you. That was a joke. You can laugh. Okay? Right. Um, A feature that is rare in Mark and Luke is hyperbole, a trait that is not, however, uncommon in Matthew. Matthew likes to say some really crazy things. Right? People do not have planks in their eyes. Anybody walking around seeing someone with a log in the middle of their eye? No? Nope. Or swallow camels. Or the dead do not bury their own dead, unless you are a fan of the nightmare before Christmas. Right? But that's all things that Matthew depicts, right? When Jesus says, if you had faith... If you had the faith that you will tell the mountain to go throw itself into the sea, no one is actually expecting that you should attempt to move Mount Tabor into the Lake of Galilee by your faith. Or that Peter is intended to count 490 acts of forgiveness before he can hold it against you. Right? Okay? You're not supposed to actually do all of these things. It's hyperbole. Therefore, I submit, here we have another instance of Matthaean hyperbole. We must pay says the evangelist, or they will resent it. And where does the money come from? Why, of course, the Lord in his goodness will provide it. Go, throw out your fishing rod, and the first fish you catch will have enough to pay for both of us in the mouth. The suggestion is not meant to be taken literal. Now, having said that, Gould is pu- Goulder is pushing us to look at this as a symbol. But you notice what he didn't tell us? What the symbol is, Right? It's very frustrating when you go to commentaries not knowing what you're supposed to find and you read all these people and they talk and they talk and they talk and they don't tell you what they want you to know. So we're going to be out on a limb now with what the fish and the coin represents. What we can get from the surface of it, and for those who know anything about interpretation, particularly biblical interpretation, you first have to start with whether it can be literally true. Could Peter have literally gone down to the Sea of Galilee thrown in his fishing line, caught a fish, and found a coin in it? Yes. Does it tell us that's what happens? No. Right? But Jesus does tell us that he says, they're walking to the path, and he says, oh yeah, you can stop crying, the girl's not dead. And what did the mourners say to him? They're like, that's stupid, she's dead. People don't come back from life. He's like, really? Bam. Right? So, what I'm saying is, literally, we could have a coin in the fish's mouth, but Matthew does not think that's important for us to actually know if it happens or not. Right? Does it make sense? So, we're going to move it to the symbolic and wonder what the coin and the fish are. But to understand that, we have to go back to the beginning of the story. Okay? So, now we're going to go back to verse 24, and we're going to start from there. Now, I'm going to keep reading the verses because I'm kind of going all over the place anyway. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does not your teacher pay the tax? Okay, what is this tax? This tax is for every Jewish male within the world to which these collectors can go. So within the Roman Empire, they were expected to pay every year two drachma, which is about four days' wages, uh, 
to the as the contributions that go to the temple to first by the sacrifices that are offered on the temple altars, and then to buy things to repair the temple, and then if they still had money, and there were actually years in which they still had money, they would take the gold and melt it down and make this nice little, like, literally there's the gold, there's, they make this gold vine that they stick on some wall, you know, because they had so much money that they're like, I don't know, it needs a little, it needs a little, you know, flair. Okay, that's, I mean, that's the point. So they had so much money one year, they're like, I don't Make a ornament, you know. So this tax is supposed to go to the temple, okay? But at the same time, the Romans don't want it to go to the temple because they would like the taxes to go to their government, right? So there's a rivalry in the first century. I'm about to fall down. Hold on. Okay, we're back. Uh, there's a rivalry in the first century between whether you as a Jew living in Roman Palestine were supposed to give the drachmas to the temple collector or to the official Roman tax collector who would then collect the tax and send some of it back to the temple to keep it up, right? The Romans wanted to keep these temples um, well furnished and, and functioning because that was sort of the deal they had made with the different peoples they had conquered. Oh, yeah. Like, because back in the Roman, when they came in, it was, the deal was sort of like, we could burn your entire city to the ground and kill all of you or you could like pray for us. And most of the people were like, I, the, the prayer thing sounds fine. That sounds good. We'll, we'll do that, right? So many of these different religious temples, I remember in the time of the Roman Empire, there were many, many different gods that people worshipped. So there are many, many different temples. All of these temples would pray for the Roman emperor or the Roman empire or or uh, whatever it was as part of their services. So the, it was in the interest of the Roman Empire to give the taxes back, some of the taxes back to the Jewish temple, but the point was is that you also had some of your taxes go over to the temple of Jupiter, the temple of Isis, the temple of the emperor himself and his own religious divine cult. And you as a Jew might not want to do that, right? So this is like a tax exemption kind of thing, right? Do you want to go straight? I want to support the temple, but do I want to give it to the government agent who's going to take his little piece and then put it back in the temple, or do I want to give it straight to the temple? Okay, so there's a lot of rivalry with these collectors out there. So we're first going to talk about whether the tax they're asking for, whether these collectors, the first question we have to ask is, are these collectors working for the government, or are they working for the temple? So go back to the passage. It just says, those that collect the two drachma tax. Matthew... Bro, you want to you wanna help me out? No, right? So it's unclear. Now, what the problem with this is, is that the same tax, it's two drachmas per head, whether you're paying the Romans or paying the temple, okay? And then the other problem we have with this is that we're not really sure that this tax was actually enforced on all Jews, okay? So I just said to you, all Jewish males had to pay the temple tax, Sorry, ladies, you got, you got free of paying the tax, but you, you know, at the time, didn't really have your own households anyway, so some man was paying for you regardless. So this is not a feminist text. Okay, so the, everyone has to basically pay the tax if everyone is asked for the tax. Now, we're going to start building the case of what this tax is. In Exodus 30, please don't turn there. I will read it for you. In Exodus 30... 
verses 11 through 16, we get the verses that talk about the tabernacle tax, which is thought to have been converted over to be this temple tax. And so it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, that each will, take, will give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you have numbered them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekels of the sanctuary, which is 20 gara, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years and older and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall make atonement money, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord and so as to make atonement for your lives. Now the context here in Exodus is we're about to build the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And all of this all of these things cost money. We have to buy very fine fabrics. We have to buy all this gold and silver. We have to buy a lot of wood to build this large tabernacle. And how are we going to pay for it? Now, it turns out later in Exodus that some people just had money that they sort of were bringing with them from Egypt. And they're like, oh, yeah, I got like the silk over here. And they just gave it to the tabernacle. But what God inst in institutes is that every time you were registered as an adult in their society. And this is a census for war, as you saw at the beginning, uh, a census for the people uh, to pay a ransom for his life. I'll come back and explain that in a second. So this is men who, when they turn 20 years old, now they can go fight in the army. When they register for the draft, if you will, they pay half a shekel, which is in the time of Jesus, is going to be two drachmas, to ransom their life back from God. Because they, as God's people, do not belong to themselves. They belong to God. And so if they're going to, they have to buy their freedom in order to go fight in a war politically. So already in Exodus 30, we have a tension between God's purposes for his people and the political apparatuses need for the people. Do you see what I'm saying? We need people to fight wars. We need people to serve in political uh, endeavors, whether that's peacetime or wartime. But all of the people of Israel don't, aren't free. See, we often talk about the, you know, the, the Israelites came out of slavery into Egypt. They didn't come out of slavery from Egypt. They went into a different type of slavery. They went from a slavery of human political apparatus to a slavery of a divine religious community. You should be writing this down. Anyway, <laughs> um, so they are not free to do whatever they want to. So if they have to go and fight a war, they have to redeem out their life. This is well known also, there's other offerings, I'm going to get into it, about if you were the firstborn son of a family at birth, you had to be redeemed back. That some of that is taking place for you because God selects certain people, the tribe of Levi, for instance, to represent you before him in the temple so that the firstborn son of every family didn't go and become a temple servant, but they could be bought back. 
Um, and then there's other, you know, like the first time, you, you know, every time your cow or your donkey or your wheat produced grain, you had to produce the tithe, you had to bring a certain, a certain the firstborn of your flock or the firstborn of your herd to the temple that also helped to pay for these sacrifices, okay? So nothing that Israel has, including their own lives, is theirs. And the money is described by two religious terms in Hebrew, the term truma, which means contribution or gift, like a gift you would give to God, and kofer, which is the money of atonement. So you'll see in, in 30 verse, in 30, in, sorry, verse 16 of chapter of Exodus 30, it says, you will bring the money of atonement for your lives. Right? Same word is used for the day of atonement, for the sacrifices of atonement. This money literally is purchasing you back from death and from God so that you can work in the army. And then when you retire, God sort of takes you back in, right? So you, you serve in the army for a certain number of years, then you, come, you retire, basically, okay? So we have on one side the idea that all of these men were supposed to be working for God and not working for the political machine, okay? Now, some of you are Disney fans. Any Disney fans out here? Who, this is, the mov, this is the movie Mulan, okay? Why did you give me daughters when I asked for sons? Anybody love, love the song, famous song from Mulan, right? This is that, right? Mulan goes in her father's place to serve in the emperor's army because he doesn't have any sons. So she cofares, she ransom or atones for his failure to produce a son from the emperor's perspective by going and serving in his place in the army. Everybody with me? That's what's happening here. Okay. So that's the first time we see it. That is, the, that is the section, Exodus 30, is where we think at the time of Jesus, the temple officials are saying, see, this is why we can come and take that tax. It's in our religious law, which means Rome can't have it because remember, this is a money that you're paying to free you from the political apparatus and redeem you with God. It's only our money. Rome can't touch it. Bear with me? Tracking with me? Okay. So the next time we see something like this text is in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 24, uh, verses 4 through 14. Now to set up the stage, we're in the middle of the two kingdoms period, right? There's the northern kingdom of Israel and there's the southern kingdom of Judah, and they're both sort of worshiping God, and, but they go back and forth. Israel's really bad at worshiping God. Uh, Judah's better, but they also sort of stop worshiping God from time to time. Um, and, you know, that doesn't happen to us. Right. Yeah, that never happens to us. You know, we're always perfectly faithful to God, right? I'm not, I'm not going to look at you in the eye as you're ashamed. Okay, so... <laughs> Here, a young king named Joash has come to the throne, and he is very loyal to God and wants to rebuild the temple, which means the temple has fallen into disrepair, and he needs to rebuild it. So he has to collect money because it costs money to build all the repairs. So he says, and after this certain point, Joash decides to restore the house of the Lord. And he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. Probably because no one wanted to pay the religious tax. You know, like the IRS coming to your door going, 
Mr. Higginbotham, uh, we noticed that you didn't pay your taxes this year. Uh, could you write us a check for that? I'm like, you know what? I just, um, checkbooks have checks. So can you come back next year and maybe I'll give it to you then, right? So that's where it hit. So the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned the high priest Jehoiada and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax which is levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of all the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked queen, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for their own gods, the Baals. And so then the next part, I'll skip it. Then they go out and they collect all this money and so much money is collected that they have, to have a, they have to build a special box to hold it. And when everyone comes in, they dump their money and the box fills up and they have to build another box and that box fills up and then they start paying all the workers and then they rebuild the temple, okay? Now, notice that the next time we see the tax being levied, it's not levied once in your lifetime, right? It's not like you turn 20, you pay your registration fee of a two of a half shekel or two drachmas. It's every year, year after year, the king requires you to pay this tax. And it's the king who requires you to pay the tax, not the temple. Right? So already we're seeing it drift back into the political sphere, back into the domain of humans taxing other humans for the benefit of the restoring of these temples. Now, the word here used for tax is mas'at, which means tax, and is more similar, if we go back to Mulan, to when the emissary of the emperor comes to their camp and tells them, you know what the rules are. It's a very, I was the only example I have from Mulan here. He's... It's, so if you're like, I don't remember that scene, I just recently watched Mulan, so that's why I know it. So anyway, so, uh, I love Mulan. Anyway, so uh, he comes and he has this whole debate, and then that's right before, if you're very famous, if you know the movie very well, that's right before he then, the Huns come and destroy them all, and he's like running like a girl and screaming. Anyway, go see the movie. You'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. You'll, you'll be like, oh, that's the, re- okay, back it up. Oh, okay, that's the part. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Sorry, I got only so many examples. Like, I have so many illustrations I can use from Mulan here. Okay, so, so this is the tax that the emperor in Mulan, or the king in the Bible, requires of the people to pay, and they don't have the money necessarily to pay it, but they still have to pay it. And it's ostensibly for the service of the empire or the temple. All right, when we move into the New Testament, the New Testament, of course, is written in Greek, but there have been, through the intervening centuries between the time of Jesus and the apostles and the writing of the New Testament and today, several people who have translated the New Testament back into Hebrew, which is very helpful in order to cross-compare this, because I would like to know as a scholar, as a teacher, what word, how, what word they used so I can know how they understand what the text meant in the time of Jesus, right? Got to like a, you know, if you go to the Mexican restaurant and you speak to them in French, doesn't work so well, right? You got to get in the right language to do the comparisons. Okay. So in the 15th century, a rabbi called Shem Tov translates it, and he uses the word makas, 
which is very important because that word is the other example from Moses of what kind of text this is. Now, that example is in Numbers 31. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go there. It's because it's three verses that are kind of scattered throughout the middle of the chapter. In that verse, makas refers to the the donations that you give to God because you have invaded and destroyed other peoples, right? So when Israel goes up into the promised land, surprisingly, there are people already living there. Hmm, that's interesting. And God says to them that you're supposed to go, shoo, shoo, go on. This is our land now. Surprisingly, they didn't leave, Right? Kind of weird. So some of the peoples enslaved themselves to the Israelites. One of the famous group is called the Gibeonites. Other people was like, no, nah, I don't think you're going to invade our land. We're going to come out with our armies and we're going to destroy you. Well, God has already made a plan for this because remember in Exodus 30, he says, when you go out to war, you have to pay this price to redeem yourself, right? But the word that Shem Tov uses for the tax here in Matthew 17 is the word that doesn't come from you paying your registration fee to go in the army. It's the percentage of the spoils of war that you give back to God for letting you live and not die. Right? Like, thank you, Jesus, for not killing me when I went off to Afghanistan. Here's some money. That's essentially the idea. Okay? Because uh, in the ancient world... Uh, Everyone that's above you, that's how you made money. By the way, that is how you made money in the ancient world. You went and invaded some people. You killed them. You got a lot of, you were hopefully found that they had a lot of money, so you wanted to kill the rich people. Because once you had enough money, then you're like, you can retire from the army. Because you have your own money now. You don't need to have the government's money. Right? So tribute is that everyone above you gets some of that money, right? So the emperor gets some money. Your general gets some money. Your commander gets some money. It's a little bit like the army today. Anybody in the military, military families? The higher you go in the military hierarchy, the less you actually have to do. Right? Right, well, I'm just saying, you know, like, they, they, call, them, they call the lowest level in the Marines grunts for a reason. Because they do all the work. The commanders have the nice uniforms. Okay. No one laughed at my military jokes. Okay, so, that's that. So, you have to pay it up. Now, what the word used for tribute here, makas, to come back to it, is the word that is treating God like one of these levels of the military political hierarchy. You pay your commander, he pays his commander, he pays his commander, he pays the king, and you also pay God, who's the real king. Yeah? So now God is not buying, so now the money is not you buying your ability to be free from God's religious sort of indenture. It's now God acting like an emperor to whom you owe a certain amount of money to pay him back for all the goods he gave you, while you know, all the food he paid you while you were fighting his army. Does that make sense? So now we've moved even more to the political realm. When we get to the modern Hebrew translation of the New Testament, the word is slightly different. It's the word for uh, imperial tax. It's called mas, uh, which is the money you pay in order for you not to have to actually go into military service. See, my last military jokes did not go over that well, so we're going to see if this one goes over that well, right? So sometimes when the, when the government has a draft, your number comes up, 
and you go into the army. And sometimes your daddy has enough money that that tennis scholarship you were on just happened to give you heel spurs so you couldn't serve in the army anymore. And there's a song about that. You know, I'm no uh, rich, I'm no senator's son. I'm going to lose the lyric. I should have written it down. Uh, And the song is talking about there are those who are going off into Vietnam, and they have to go off to Vietnam because they're not rich enough to pay for someone else to go in their place. That's what this word is. You either go, back to Mulan, by the way, you either go, you know, you've got to dress up in your father's armor and you've got to go to serve the army, or you've got to pay the emperor off so that you don't have to serve. And the implication of Mulan is that her father is respected and honorable, but he's not wealthy enough to buy his freedom from the emperor. Okay, go watch Mulan. It's a biblical allegory. Okay, there we go. It's also a really cool story. Anyway, so, so this is where it is. So over here, the word they're using is the word for military service pay. We always want a word for money you pay back to the government to pay them for all the things they did. We also had a word for the normal taxes you'd pay, and we have a word for religious payments for atonement or whatever. So who's confused? Good, so am I. I have no idea what tax this is, is what I'm saying. Okay? So I told you I was going to explain it. I've not explained it yet. Let's keep going. So... What's interesting about this tax is that no one really knows why this tax is being levied, right? There is, potent, there is some possibilities in Exodus and Numbers and Second Chronicles, maybe a reference in Nehemiah, for why Jews were supposed to pay this tax for the temple. But there is a legitimate argument for which you can say, I don't remember that being in my Bible. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't remember that passage being in my Bible. So there's a controversy that's going on in the first century. Many think, many commentators think that this tax was first instituted as an annual tax sometime in the Hasmonean period. Now, for those of you who are not history majors, the Hasmoneans were Jewish kings that reigned after the Persian Empire, see Daniel and Ezekiel, and before the Romans, see the New Testament. So in the 400-ish years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was this independent Jewish kingdom called the Hasmoneans. And the reason why Rome came and became, they became a Roman province is because two brothers were fighting over the throne, and the Roman general just happened to be passing up from Egypt on his way up to Syria, and the two brothers made a mistake, because they said, hey, why don't you come in here, and you listen to us, and you decide which of us is going to be king. And he listened to both of them. And they decided that he should be king. And that's why the Romans now control Palestine. So when you're fighting over your brother, over the inheritance of grandma's you know, pearl necklaces or whatever, don't ask the police officer to come and arbitrate it. Because he might soon own grandma's pearl necklace. And your house. And kill you. Yeah, it's bad. Okay, so... This possibly was first instituted the Hasmoneans. Why would the Hasmoneans institute a temple tax? Because they're trying to build a temple, they're trying to run an empire, they're trying to be a kingdom, right? Still clear as mud, right? It is certainly not accepted without dispute, however. Protests against the taxes were still current all the way into the time of the New Testament. The Qumran community, which generally disapproved of everything the temple did, 
limited their support and contact to the temple to the once-in-one's-lifetime contribution discussed in Exodus 30. Right? So they said, oh, no, 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 that's not an annual tax. It says when you turn 20, you pay the money. The word says truma. It doesn't say ma'asat. It's truma. You're thinking, well, that's kind of pedantic. Some of you are not paying your taxes because you bought a house this year. I mean, it have that mortgage deduction. I don't have to pay that amount of tax, state of Ohio. I have a mortgage. Right? So you're also... Nobody cares about my things. Okay, I'm trying to connect it with real life. Anyway, so it's already under discussion between different religious groups whether or not you're supposed to pay this tax, which is why, coming back to verse 24, they ask, does your teacher pay the tax? See, the question is phrased in the affirmative question. Like, does, like, it's a little bit like, when did you stop beating your wife? It expects a certain answer. Oh, I've never been beating my wife. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when, does your teacher pay the tax? Which is why Peter says, oh, of course he pays the tax. Right? It's phrased in a certain way. But the reason why they ask the question in that kind of linguistic form is because they want everyone to pay the tax. What Peter should have said, if he was skilled, was... Well, why should I pay the tax? Should not we pay the tax once in our lifetime? As it says in Exodus 30, verse 15? Or whatever, right? He doesn't do that. He answers, yes, we're going to do it because he gets sort of stuck in a bind. Now, this tax was eventually forced upon everyone. And that's because the tax moved from the temple where you could or could not pay it based on whether, how much you support the temple. Uh, and it became a Roman tax. By the year 45, so a little bit after, uh, so during the time of the early church, but after Jesus' death and resurrection, we have records in Egypt and in Syria, Ostraca, in which these taxes paid. It's paid to the Roman governor, and it's dated to the Roman governor, you know, in the year of this Roman governor and the, the reign of this emperor, Emperor Claudius, uh, they paid two drachmas per person for an entire household. Okay? So, by the t- so just a little bit after the time of Jesus, the Romans come in and go, you know what, we're not going to mess with this temple tax anymore. You're just going to pay us directly, and then we'll just give you a little pers- percentage of it, and then that'll take care of your temple. Guess what? That doesn't actually solve the problem. Because the Jews said, I still don't want to do that. I'm not going to pay Rome because they're going to take their peace out. They're going to do it. So by the year 62, the emperor, uh, sorry, the the governor institutes an edict forbidding Jews from paying the tax directly to Jerusalem. He creates a currency control edict. You know, sort of says you can't, you know, bring money into the country anymore. Because there were people who were going around the diaspora collecting big chests of money and importing the money and taking it directly to the temple. He said, no, 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 no. That money goes to me. Can't do that. And the temple tax is actually thought to be one of several reasons why the temple is finally destroyed along with Jerusalem in the year 70. That because all this money is going around the Roman imperial taxation system and supporting the temple directly, the Roman emperor and the Roman governors decide, we're done with this. 
and we're just going to cut it off entirely. Now, so we're not really sure what the Roman tax is at the time when Jesus writes. In this liminal period where it's going from being a temple tax to being a Roman tax, it's also under discussion about whether you even have to pay the temple tax. It's also under discussion whether you are supposed to understand this is a once-in-a-lifetime tax or an every-year tax. Anybody clearer yet? Because I'm still confused is what I'm saying, okay? So if you're confused... We're in the same boat. We're going to get through it, okay? So again, we go back, and it says, Does not your teacher pay the temple tax? And Peter, of course, says, Of course he does. And then he goes back into the house, and Jesus says what to him? Hey, Peter, why do you think that we have to pay the tax? And the, the question sort of explaining, well, 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 are we... I mean, we're Jewish, and we support the temple, right, Jesus? Right, Jesus? We support the temple, yes? And they're asking for us to support the temple, and, and we don't want to support Rome, because obviously you don't support Rome, because we don't support Rome, I mean, obviously. Uh, so, of course, we pay the temple tax, and he says, but that's not what Jesus... So Jesus follows up with the question, do kings get their taxes from their own children or from other people's children? The answer is... From other people's children, right? right? So if you're the king, and you know, you're like the son of a king, a daughter of a king, you don't have to pay the tax. Because you're exempt, because you would pay it with, you get your money out, you pay the tax, and that money comes right back to you because you live in the palace. Everybody with me? So like, why would you do that? That seems silly, right? Now, behind this is also the question of who else would be exempt? We know from later rabbinic writings, we, we sadly do not have a lot of evidence from, of what Jews thought and the diversity of Jews other than the New Testament in Qumran. So when we have to get away from those and, and ask about things, we have to go a lot later in time. So a little bit later in time, around the year 200, uh, the rabbis are writing down and they say that men and Levites and uh, proselytes, people who have converted in to be Jew Jews, uh, have to pay the tax, but women and priests and children do not. And the women and, the women and children is easy because they're not men. Sorry, ladies. But the priest is the really interesting one. And the reason is, why would a priest pay the temple tax? Because he would pay the temple tax, and it would come back to him in the temple. And that makes no sense, Right? So that's what the question that Jesus is asking. Do the sons of kings pay taxes? The answer is no. That's, so, that, that's really dumb. But what's also interesting is that same passage that we learned from the rabbis. Just below that they say, we only collect the tax from, from Jews. If you are a Samaritan or a Gentile, we don't accept that tax. Okay. So you can't freely go and just give money. Like you could just be some God-fearing Roman centurion. There's like a lot of them in the New Testament. And you could just want to give your money to support the taxes. And they would say, no, 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 no. Only Jewish men can pay the taxes. So then the question is, are the sons of the king and the other... So we're talking about the sons of the king is one group, and the others are the second group... Are the others the Gentiles? 
No, the answer is no, right? Because the Gentiles don't pay. So the others are also Jews. Everybody track with my math thus far, okay? So the others are also Jews, but they're not the sons of the king group of Jews. So who is Jesus actually talking about here? He's talking about people to whom the temple tax should be paid. But is Jesus a priest? No, he's not a priest. He comes from Galilee. He's the son of David. And he never serves in the temple. So where does Jesus get off saying, guess what, Peter, we don't have to pay the tax because we just pay it and it comes right back to us. Because he's saying the tax you're paying, you're ultimately paying to God. So God is the king. So the sons of the king are those that truly worship God. And then the others are people who think that they worship God, but they're still under his kingdom because they're not yet sons. Now we're finally getting, see, now it's getting clearer, Andrew. See, we're doing that whole other part. It was really confusing. Now, see, I told you it was going to get better as we went on. Again, you got confused here, Vince. Thanks for this passage. Really? Okay. Had Peter not given the tax collectors an affirmative answer, we would never have gotten what Jesus was trying to say about the whole tax question, right? Jesus doesn't tell you whether the tax was supposed to be once in your lifetime or every year. Jesus doesn't tell you whether the tax is a religious contribution, a political payment, or a, a, uh, an obligation to the state. Jesus never tells you whether certain groups are exempt and certain groups are not exempt, except that he and his kingdom are the sons to whom no tax is ever asked. Your brain, your brain should be blowing up now. Because Jesus just said that ordinary people, ordinary people who are a part of his kingdom now outrank the priests and the princes of every nation. Okay, see, they don't ever say hallelujah to me either, so I don't get an amen either, so just, you know. Their, their brains are melting, and I'll accept that, right? So if Peter, silly, dumb Peter, had never got Jesus into the bind in the first place, Jesus would have never had the opportunity in the text to tell us that we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. You with me? That's why we don't have to know what the tax was. We don't know how much the tax was. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the coin was in a fish. Because what matters is that you and I can be and are sons and daughters of the Most High King to whom all tribute is paid, to whom all the wealth and riches of the world belong, and to whom and who does not require his children to pay any of that. Again, we're talking about a very small coin, right? A two drachma coin, like four days wages that you pay maybe once in your entire lifetime. Perhaps the lowest, least significant least important aspect of the law of Moses. And Jesus is saying that you don't have to do any of that system anymore. 
right? So this is called a all four tier argument. If you don't even pay the two pennies that you pay because you're 20 years old and you're a man, how much more so do you not have to continue on with the sacrifices of blood and fat before the altar in order to receive atonement before your father who is the king and God? I still didn't get an amen on that one. Okay. I'm going to put up, we're gonna get, we have to get a sign or some sort of applause light or something like that. We're going to get something. Okay. So, <laughs> the whole story hinges on this statement. From whom, do, do, from whom do the kings of the earth require taxes? From their own sons or from others? Okay. Let's see where I was going with that. All right. So, now, like I said, this idea of the kings of the earth is a very interesting phrase. So this whole week, one of the things that was putting a lot of stress on me trying to prepare this message was I was trying to, I knew in the back of my head I had heard this story before. And yes, it's from the Bible. I'm not talking about that. I had heard it as a parable in another book. So I spent an entire day in the library looking it up. In three different languages, by the way. Thank you very much. In English, in Greek, and in Hebrew. And then, when the end of the day came and I couldn't find it, I happened upon a commentator who said, this reminds me of a story that I heard from a rabbinic parable. But to be sure, I cannot find the exact story. <laughs> Should have checked the book before I spent eight hours of the computer. Okay, so, so this is a story that sounds like a lot of stories that are sort of floating around in the Jewish world, but there's no exact parallel to the story. The closest parallel we have are stories that begin with something like this. A king, who has, a king of flesh and blood requires his son, and the story goes on, right? To build a wall, to build a palace, to sit on top of a trash heap. They're really funny stories, by the way. I wish I had had a story that I could bring because they're really funny, right? Like the king builds a wall so he doesn't have to look at like his stepson. It's, it's funny, haha. But there's no exact story. So I don't have one. But we know that this type of phrase is used by many Jewish groups at the time of Jesus as a way of describing something in what's called a mashal. A mashal is the Hebrew word uh, for a parable. And the king in every mashal is always God. But we already figured that out. We didn't need the mashal. See, I didn't need my exact parallel because I didn't need because I didn't need it. But I was going to bring it because it's a funny story, usually involving like poop, a trash pit, and a wall. I know I'm serious. It's really funny. Maybe the next time, maybe the next time you'll give me an Easter passage, I can find one that's mashal for that. So. The best we can do is look for parallel kind of stories, parables, within the Bible that we have. So one example is Psalm 138. So the Psalms are arranged uh, in sort of thematic groups. And the last section of the book of Psalms, the book five, and the way we describe it and put titles on it, are songs that are basically hymns that you sing in association with the temple. 
There's one set of hymns called Hallel Psalms that Jews even today still sing as part of Passover. Uh, They're praise songs that you sing uh, that talk about the redemption of Israel. And then there's a collection of psalms that are called Psalms of the Ascent, which literally means you sang these songs as you walked up the stairs to get in Jerusalem and go to the temple. If you don't know your geography, if you go to Israel, Jerusalem sits on top of a hill. So you have to actually go up to Jerusalem. So when it says in the Bible, they went up to Jerusalem, they literally went up to Jerusalem. And then you go in Jerusalem and you have to go up to the Temple Mount, right? So you sing these songs and you sing a song and you stop and you sing it and you go to the next part, you sing the next song. You sing them as you ascend. This psalm comes in the group right after that. Sort of like assorted miscellaneous temple songs. This psalm is thought to be about the return from exile. So having praised God for your redemption, having been freed from exile, having ascended up to the temple, you might possibly sing the psalm in the temple courts about how God has saved you from exile. Okay? So in that context, let's read Psalm 138. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before all the gods, I give you praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you are exalted above all things, your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me, and my strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he, is regarded, he regards the lowly, and the haughty he knows from afar." Though I have walked in the midst of trouble, you have preserved my life. I stretch out my hand, you stretch out your hand, excuse me, against the wrath of my enemies, and my, your right hand delivers me. The Lord has fulfilled his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forget me, the work of your hands. Right? So in this idea, we have some tropes that connect to this idea of the tax. Your holy temple, the temple tax. All the kings of the earth will give you thanks, right? Which connects to what we find out in, the, in the, the prophets, that God does not desire sacrifices or gifts of money. He desires love, mercy, justice, and thankfulness, right? So the kings are paying taxes back to God. They're coming into Jerusalem paying his, his tribute. And that the, king who is, the Lord who is exalted has taken note of those that are humble, Again, why is Peter possibly freaking out about paying this tax? He and Jesus don't have any jobs right now, right? He left his fisherman job to follow Jesus. Jesus ain't got no money, right? He's just going around from Nazareth, right? Every so often he pops back in town and people try to stone him. They're not, collecting, they're not bringing up a collection for Jesus when he comes back to town, is what I'm saying, okay? So they ain't got no money. And the guy just said, you need to pay your taxes. Either it's the Roman official or the Jewish official. You have to pay your taxes. And Jesus says, the Lord exalted has regard for those who are humble. Peter, go take that fishing pole you have. Go out to the sea, cast it in, catch the fish. That fish is going to pay your taxes to me. Don't worry about it, Peter. The Lord exalted has regard for the humble. Now, two other passages within the book of Matthew come to, come to mind as well when we think about this parable. 
Who, for whom do the kings of the earth pay taxes, from their own sons or from those of others? One is the very famous passage in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22, in which the Pharisees try to catch Jesus in a paradox. And they say, Jesus, do we have to pay the taxes to Caesar? And then if he says, yes, then the Pharisees will say, you're loyal to Caesar, you're not loyal to your fellow people. And if they say no, then they're going to go rat him out to the Roman governor, and he's going to get arrested for treason, right? But Jesus is smarter than all of us. And what does he say? If you're not familiar with the story, this is what he says. He says, can you show me the coin with which you pay the taxes? And one of the Pharisees pulls it out of his pocket and hands it to him. It has the picture of the Caesar on it. Now, what's funny about that is the Pharisees are not supposed to carry coins around that have the images of other humans because those are considered idols. Yet the Pharisee has it in his pocket. Ha-ha! Gotcha. He says, whose image is on the coin? And whose coin is this? And they said, it's Caesar's. He says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Ha! Got him! And he just walks off and they're like, dang it. They do like that a couple different times. They try to catch him and he's like, well, what about this? And they're like, dang it. Anyway, but this is the same question that's being asked. Do you pay the taxes? And here in Matthew 17, Jesus says, do we pay the taxes? Are we not the sons of the king anyway? Sons of kings don't pay taxes. Okay. The other parable on the other side of Matthew 17, and I really like that because we have the render unto Caesar on one side, we have this other parable on their side, and the, the one in the middle is between, and I think that's purposeful. I think Matthew is saying, kind of remember these two. It's intention, that's why it's kind of a miracle story and kind of a parable story. In Matthew 13, verses 44 and 45, this is part of the, uh, uh, a, a list of parables that he has. It says, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was hidden in a field. And a man found it and covered it up. And with great joy, he goes and sells all he has to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he finds one of great value, he goes and sells everything he owns in order to purchase it. Now, the implication in the parable of Matthew 13 is that these two people give up everything, everything for something that is worth vastly more to them. Right? And the better one is the one in the pearl. He goes, sells his house, his car, his stocks, his bonds, everything for one piece of jewelry. Right? And the man who finds a field, the idea behind that is the one who's the pearl, the, the merchant of pearls, knows what a, pearl, what a valuable pearl could be. So you could say, oh yeah, of course he's going to buy all, sell all his stuff because he knows he's going to buy this pearl from like, you know, someone's grandma at the flea market and he's going to take it to Antique Roadshow and it's going to be worth like $50 million and he's going to make all the money. Anybody watch Antique Roadshow? Do you love that? It's always like some weird like leather purse that someone's grandma just had in the attic and they're like, this is an authentic Native American woven blah, blah, blah. It's worth $30 million. And the people are like, you know, I went to my grandma's attic. She doesn't have any of those baskets, and I'm, like, really mad. Anyway. So the pearl merchant clearly knows what he's getting when he gives up everything. But the man who is, finds the treasure finds it by accident. He just literally stumbles over the box 
right? There was no ax on the ground, no map to send him to the treasure. He finds it, hides it, goes, sells what he does, and comes back. What's very interesting about that is that he hides it. So, what does the parable mean? Let's see, so what does the parable mean? Jesus doesn't tell us what those parables mean. Jesus, come on. Matthew, come on. But the implication is the kingdom of heaven is something so valuable, so valuable that one man will come back for it having found it by complete accident. And even if he hides it, he knows what it is worth. It is worth everything to him. The other man finds it in a completely open environment, the marketplace, but he knows what it's worth, and so he gives up everything. We have two extremes of humanity. The person who finds the kingdom by accident and tells no one about it, and the person who finds it in the open marketplace where anyone can know it Anyone could have found it and yet sees its value when no one else does. The gospel is the same for the person who never shares it with anyone else but claims it for themselves. As it is for the man who searched all of the religions of the world, all of the philosophies and ideologies that are out there that everyone could know and knows when he finds the value of something. To whom do the kings of the earth require taxes? From their own sons or from others? The implication, if I may draw it, is this. At one time, we were others. We were not sons and daughters, right? We were people walking through a field and found it. Or we were people searching for it and finally found it. All of us are looking for something and finding something of value here. And when that happens, we move from being those to whom taxes are required to those for whom taxes are exempt. We move into a place in which we are given all of the riches of heaven, all of the blessings and atonement for what? Our everything. Yeah. Right? Because we see that this one thing, one thing, is worth more than anything we could have had or possess now. Let's get this work. So, Also, and let's get this part too, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, I already covered that part. Okay, so. Uh, got ahead of myself in the notes, sorry about that. Okay, so. What's also very interesting is that this passage reminds us a little bit of sort of a word play. The kings of the earth, when it should be the kings of flesh and blood. And they pay the taxes, but we're never told if they pay the taxes or not. And the wordplay may be something similar to this. God is showing us when he requires the law of us that he himself pays his taxes. 
You ready for that? Oh, see, my wife's got it. She's, she's not on the way. Jesus, God, sinless, perfect, eternal, divine, incarnate word of God, follow the law. Right? The question he asks is not, no, I don't pay the taxes, or yes, we pay the taxes. He says, do I even have to pay the taxes, Peter? Do I have to pay the taxes? And the answer is, no, I don't. But what is the next thing he says in verse 27? But so that we may not offend, go and pay the, your taxes and mine. You with me? I'm about, to, I'm about to lay it down on you for you. Do you get it? So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Jesus becomes incarnate. He becomes human like us to pay our taxes. To pay what Peter and you and me could never afford to pay. Even though he is not owe any taxes because he's the son of the king. He doesn't have to pay the taxes. Jesus doesn't have to go to the temple and offer sacrifices. Jesus doesn't have to ask for forgiveness. But he does all of those things for us, reminiscent of the beginning of Matthew, when he goes to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, do this for them. You baptize me because you show them that even I, God, am not exempt from the law that I have laid down. Now, this should worry some of you. This should worry some of you. Because some of you were really hoping for a tax holiday with God. Mm -hmm. Some of you were really hoping for God to be like, well, I mean, they were kind of good enough. So, I mean, we're just going to be like, wah, 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 wah. carry the one and give them a tax credit. And now, okay, they're fine. There are no deductions and loopholes in God's tax economy. Right? And you don't have the money to pay. Okay? Which is why Jesus had to pay. A lot of people ask that. Why did Jesus have to be our atoning sacrifice? Right? Why? Right? The book of Hebrews actually refers to it. Right? It says, if the blood of bulls and goats could have atoned for us, we didn't need him. But then he came, proves to us that all of this other law stuff doesn't actually save us. It just prepares us for the tax bill. And then prepares us that the tax has been paid. Y'all ready? Y'all feeling me? You getting it? Jesus came because even God cannot break God's laws. God cannot give you a tax-free holiday. Even though he is full of mercy and love, his law is the law for everything, and he willingly submits himself to the law. Huh, I heard that somewhere. Willingly submits himself in the form of a servant, even a servant unto death. That, though he has made himself low, this is Philippians 2, for those of you who don't know, so I'm going to put my hand this way so you can hear on the microphone. Philippians 2. So that he who has been diminished may be exalted above all things. That, as we sang earlier today, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord forever. 
One commentator says, the eschatological filial relationship, the idea that in the future we will be sons and daughters of God, replaces the temple and suspends the cultic law at its very core. This is not analogous to the freedom from assessments that Jewish priests may have claimed for themselves. Because the Christians never claimed a central place themselves in the temple as the priests had done. Instead, for them... It was Jesus' unique atoning sacrifice and heavenly priesthood that replaces the temple's cult. Then one could still participate in the earthly cult as a Jew and to be, to be a Jew as to Jews, as Paul does in Acts and 1 Corinthians. But that is an act of freedom as a son for the sake of the gospel and not in order to give offense to those who do not understand yet, right? So this leads us to the last part. Why do we follow some of the laws? This is what I like to call the shrimp cocktail question. Well, if you Christians followed the whole Bible and followed blah, 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 then why do you eat shrimp? And the easy answer is because Jesus said we can eat shrimp. Yeah, that's fine. But the real answer of why we follow the law is two reasons. One reason is given in Galatians. That you will not cause others to... Uh, so that you, you follow the law because it's the way of teaching you. But at some point, you don't need anymore. At some point, you realize you can't pay those taxes. And you are supposed to be motivated by what you have learned from the Bible, from the law, to go and fall upon the mercy and grace of Christ. And then... You follow the law so as to not lead others astray. Let's go to Romans 13. So when the book of Romans is laying out this large argument, the argument is that there are two groups within the church in Rome. Those who are Jewish and follow the Jewish laws, and those who are Gentiles who don't think they have to follow the Gentile laws, and they're having a church split. And Paul writes them a letter and drops the theological warhead on them in 12 chapters, and then comes up with this statement. Remember, they're living in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will encourage judgment. For rulers are not terrors to good conduct, but to evil. Would you have no fear for the one who has authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you may also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to the one whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Paul reflects what is said in Matthew 22. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but render unto God what is God's. And it turns out that by rendering unto Caesar, you do render unto God because God has appointed Caesar to be your ruler. ruler. 
Peter repeats a very similar thing in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be in subjection for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be as to the emperor as supreme or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Value everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter, Paul, and Matthew do not give us an excuse. We serve earthly authorities. We follow earthly laws and biblical laws where they apply to us, as in they don't violate the gospel and they don't violate the truth of God. We obey them because by doing that, we stand as a beacon to those around them that just because we are freed from the law, that we are not anarchists in this world. That was a big claim in the Reformation that the, the Christians were becoming anarchists because they were freeing themselves from all sorts of religious, all sorts of secular and religious authorities. And instead, we are supposed to stand as examples for others because you are the field in which a treasure is hidden that a man will find and sell everything he owes for. You are the pearl of grace price in the market of ideas and religions. For the one who is searching will find it and sell everything he owns in order to possess it. You were the man searching. Now you are the treasure bearer. That is why you obey. And that is why Jesus says, so as not to cause offense, pay your tax and mine. Pay your tax so that we do not get into the middle of this discussion about whether we're supposed to pay the taxes or not. Pay the taxes even though we're not owed. We don't need to pay the taxes anymore, Peter. But we pay them so that we don't create a barrier for other people. Craig Keener, in his commentary on this passage, says there are three principles that we can learn. Jesus cares about his disciples' social obligations. The disciples must also need to be ready to surrender their privileges and rights for the sake of the gospel. And thirdly, Jesus will supply for our needs. So we come back to the end of the passage. And I'm really going to focus just very quickly on one phrase. The phrase, pay for your taxes and mine with the one coin. This is also an illustration. And this, I think, is the reason why the illustration is given. I don't know what the fish is. We're not going to talk about the fish. Don't come after this and ask me what the fish is. I don't know what the fish is. Okay, so I don't know what the fish is for. I know what the coin is for. In Jewish law, two brothers can pay their, tie, their temple dues together in one coin, as long as they are already joint heirs of the estate. This whole, I'm going to skip it for the sake of time, this whole long discussion in which they say, okay, they, they give the story. A man dies and he, owes, he gives to his two sons his inheritance, to the, his property. And they ask, okay, do the sons form a partnership to keep the estate together, to leave, keep the family farm going, before they divided it or after they divided it? You see what I'm saying? Right? Like could have each get what they're owed and then they go, you know what, we don't want to split up the farm, we're going to put it back together. It's option one. Option two is they go, no, we're going to keep the farm together and you're going to do this part, and I'm going to do this part, we'll be partners together. If they split it and then came back together, when they pay the shekel, they have to pay a little bit more in order for that money to be turned over into the temple money. 
This is Jesus in the temple, the money changers. The money changers are people, the money came in with the provinces, it's not the right kind of money. And you had to switch, you had to do a currency exchange at the temple, right? And Jesus is like, nope. That's a different story though. So if you came together and you brought your one shekel because you were considered one person, joint heirs in the estate, you didn't have to pay the conversion fee called the surcharge, right? So when Jesus says, go pull the fish, it will have a four drachma coin in its mouth to pay for your taxes and mine. He implies by that, you don't have any more to pay. The four drachmas are going to cover your tax and mine, which means what? Peter and Jesus are already joint heirs of the kingdom. Has Jesus died yet? Has Jesus raised yet? Has Jesus been lifted up in glory and become the king of the kingdom yet? But Peter, and by implication, us, are already in the economy of God joint heirs with him. So Jesus not only paid our taxes for us, he paid the taxes of our sin for us because we were already joint with him in the economy of God. He had already, in the big theological terms, adopted us before the foundations of the earth in him through his election to be subjected to the law, to die on the cross, and to be our atoning sacrifice. Right? So, this message is going out to you, who may be sitting here or hearing this, going, I don't know this kingdom. I don't think I am an heir of this kingdom. To which I'm going to say, the opportunity is already here. Right? God has already made you joint heirs with Christ. All he needs for you to do is sell everything and claim the pearl, the value, the one thing worth more than anything in this world. Let us pray. Dearest Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, dear Jesus, that you came as our atoning sacrifice. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have interpreted this for us, even as I have fallen over myself trying to figure out what the passage means. You have spoken to us, each of us in this moment. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to continue to speak to us in the days to come. We ask you that you would guide those of us who do not know you as Lord and Savior to give everything for you, to claim you as our ransom, and to be joint heirs with you in the kingdom when you return. We ask you, our Father, our Savior, our Lord, to work in us in the days to come as we continue to obey those in authority over us as we obey you, as we are examples and treasure bearers to those around us. We ask you, Holy Spirit, dear Jesus and Father, to guide us in the days to come in both evil and good for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.